Hi, my name is Dave Stitt and a very warm welcome to my Coaching Conversations podcast. In this series, I'm talking with senior people from industry, academia and the world of politics about them and their experience of coaching. My aim is to raise awareness of what coaching is and isn't, so as a practice it becomes more widely used in the construction industry, making things better for construction people. I hope you enjoy listening and find these recordings useful. Today I'm talking with um, Alex Atherton. Hi Alex, good, good to have you here. Afternoon Dave, great to be here. So, so look Alex, r- rather than me try and introduce you and get it all wrong, how about you say something about yourself? Get us started. Okay, well my background is in education. So for, for 12 years I was a secondary school head teacher uh, for 12 years in inner London. Um, Mostly two schools, uh, but also did uh, led a third school at the end of that. And in recent years, I've moved from that to doing a lot of leadership development work, primarily with senior leaders and CEOs, either one-to-one basis or working with leadership teams. All right. And how's that going? It's great. I enjoy it a lot. I enjoy the variety. I enjoy... Uh, getting out and about and seeing some clients. I enjoy working with lots of clients over the course of a working day. I still do a little bit of school improvement work, um, but often those are now coaching relationships where leaders have got particular challenges. Either they're overseeing a group of different schools or particular challenge in, in where they are now. Uh, and the leadership team were absolutely adore it where you've got a whole bunch of people all striving really hard to take an organisation to the next level, shift how they do things, open to change, working it out. And, and you're at the, at the start of them trying to help them stay on track, help them see the possibilities amongst themselves, which they may not yet have seen, and you know see real, you know, sustainable, often incredible change. I really, really, really enjoy enjoy all of that. So, so I used to know a few head teachers about fifty years ago, Alex. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure if I got on with them very well. <laughs> well, 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 so so we're gonna we're gonna get into your into your current stuff mm-hmm. uh, throughout this conversation. But I, I, I'd love to I'd love to get a feel for what, what what was it like to be a head teacher, particularly in in London. Well, it was quite it's quite strange. I'm from I'm from South Yorkshire, and I spent the '90s in Manchester at university, and then the first job, and then one by one, my mates were moving away, going to different parts of the country, or a year abroad, or whatever it was. So um, I applied for a job in Manchester, job in Birmingham, job in London, job in London came up first. I got it, and as it happened, it was the most senior one of the lot. And I don't think I really quite knew what I was getting myself into, but, you know, they seemed to want me to do it. And then I I just found the atmosphere and the pace and the intensity of an inner city secondary school going at full throttle, you know, I I was totally into it, totally into it. And and in terms of the difference that you can make, you know, to the lives of, of the kids in it and the parents and the community and all those kinds of things. Uh, it, it was an incredible 
privilege to do it and I, I really really enjoyed it um 12 years for me was enough um but because also came into it at a very young age so that there was always a an element of what might happen next um and the idea of doing that all the way through to whatever age i don't think ever quite appealed but in terms of what it was like well it's lots of different things i mean you know from 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 one angle you know you've got a couple of hundred staff you've got an eight-figure budget you've got all kinds of operations and things that go on underneath uh but you know a lot of the time you're managing 100 classrooms and hope you know trying to make sure that good stuff comes out of that but the nature of the places that i worked in were you know were areas that needed help so you're talking about two-thirds of kids qualified for free school meals or had done recently you're talking about three quarters of the kids having English as an additional language. Um, you know, it's it's incredibly diverse, a lot of r- real genuine poverty, but also that juxtaposed with being in the capital city with endless opportunity, you know, somewhere between a 10 or a 20 minute tube ride away depending on which school I was in at the time so the physical journey from where some of them were to where they could be was tiny but the journey they had to travel you know educationally and confidence and all those kinds of things was vast you know that that challenge um you know, it was 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 brilliant, and you know, I really enjoyed it. You know, even today, you know, an ex-student, you know, popping up on LinkedIn, um, you know, probably thirties um, rather than twenties now. You know, um, yeah, you just look at what what these ex-kids, for put it like that, are doing, and it's it's fantastic, and it's just it's given me because I've stayed in the same. I've lived in the same part of London for, for some time now. And you bump into people here and there. It's, it's sort of given me something to sustain going through and watching that generation who were in the schools go through into the workplace has also given me new things to think about, new coaching topics, new things to talk about, conferences and all those kind of things. So it, there's a sort of um, afterlife to it which I would never have expected at the time, uh, but it's clearly there now. So it's the generation I feel from one angle I've not stopped serving, even though they're now either recently past school age or in some cases twice, you know, school top of school age and all, and all those kinds of things. Mm. So, so I'm, 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 I'm wondering what you're doing now and what what are the crossovers from you know that experience as a as a head teacher to working with execs in industry and and, and what do you bring from one to the other there's probably too many questions there alex but but, but choose the one you want to take i'd say that um public sector private sector so in a school you're still dealing with a lot of private sector companies, depending on how your setup operates. You're still dealing with caterers. You're still dealing with builders. 
And there were the two very big building projects I was involved with. One was a complete rebuild and one a significant um, remodel and refurbishment that were, you know, number of tens of millions of pounds between them. You're still dealing with all manner of suppliers and you know and all those kinds of things. The one thing you're not de- when people used to say to me, "Oh, you know, head teacher, you, you know, you're like you're running a business, aren't you?" and are always flinched at that, right? You know, because you know you, you're not about profit and and so on. And the one thing that the private sector has to keep the eye on all the time that which I didn't was cash flow. Because you know what you, I mean, you might not get as much as you want centrally, and you might not be able to generate as much as you want through lettings and all those kinds of things. But you do know, when you know what's coming, you do know it is coming. And it's divided in sorts of intervals. You're not wondering, is there enough in the bank to pay the staff, you know, and all those, all those kinds of things. And one of the challenges I've had is trying to translate my experience into something but package it in such a way that people from private sector or voluntary sector or elsewhere in the public sector can can identify with. So if you say, okay, I've been in charge of an organisation with 200 staff, budget of 14 million quid, you know, and all these different kinds of things, and also get across the complexity of it, um, you know, the nature of the task with the diversity of the student and the parent population, uh, the, the regulation, you know, through Ofsted and, and whatever else. Once you can convey that, then people are are interested. You know, you're not having to deal with, you're a company, uh, you know, you're not going to be owned by private equity. You're not going to be owned by an organisation that is abroad and all those kinds of things. You might get taken over, as can happen in, in the school world these days. But there's enough of it where you say, well, actually... You know that the private sector is not a monolith. You know, firms vary incredibly in terms of size, complexity, geographical spread, all those kinds of things. So, uh, if you can show that how your world might translate, and if you can, because sh- as you say, um, your own experience with head teachers. Well, everyone's got an experience with head teachers. Everyone's got that reference point of having gone through school, but not necessarily knowing what the head teacher might have done or even seen them much. Whereas I suppose I try to be out and about quite a lot. Um, you know, and you know, kids would knock on my office window at break and all those kind of, that's kind of, so what happens in the cities, you know, I used to like all that kind of thing. But once you can pitch what you used to do and the skill set needed for it and show the connection and show you might understand something of where the leaders you're working with are coming from, once you're through that barrier, you're off. And also, what what you're also making clear is what you don't know about. Okay, so I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not experienced in dealing with supply chains. You know, not experienced at dealing with um, subcontracting much. Although having seen it in action with the big building projects, you know, is is what they did. But then that also gives the person or the team you're working with an idea of what you don't know, which from a coaching perspective means they've got to come up with the answers and the possibilities. Your job as a coach is to is just to keep pushing to say, well, actually, have you thought of everything? You know, well, let's have another possibility, another possibility, put the rule book down and let's do some thinking, you know, th- that kind of thing. So I think once you've established those terms, 
I think you can still do a great job for for a client. And then the other angle is because I've worked with um, different generations. I mean, I think the the cohorts that went through the schools when I was head teacher, but there was also ten years before that. You know, it, it, you've got a real view on how how society has changed. You know how economic ups and downs, technological changes, all those kinds of things. I've had to adapt because I, I think schools. I've had to be incredibly agile. I'm not saying more agile than everywhere else. Because you know, even if you looked at a school and think, well, it's a bunch of rooms and corridors, well, to a large extent, that might still be true. But in terms of how it operates, what it's had to adjust to and so on, there's, there's, been, there's been an awful lot. And if you can package that together rather than just, well, what's the person who used to take assembly now and again got to offer me? You know, you've got to get past that element to demonstrate the value you might be able to add to a client. Mm, interesting. So look, let, let's get one thing straight. Uh, you, you said that most people don't see much of their headmasters. I saw a lot. <laughs> okay. I, I was re- I'm, I'm a bit dyslexic and I'm a bit ADHD. If, if, and, and my wife reckons that if I was at school now, I'd be on Ritalin. Uh, so I used to get thrown out of class a lot, and I used to see the headmaster at Stitt. Go and see the headmaster. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but those but those students have got they're interesting though, and they've got and you see in this day and age, you know you don't have to be everything, you know, and you can build others around you that have got, you know, um, the longer attention spans if you need it, and on all those kinds of things. That I I think that trying to shift to demonstrate that things that might not have been great for them in the classroom can be absolute assets outside of it. That is also part of the part of the challenge. Yeah, yeah. My 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 wife is a, a dyslexic specialist, and uh, I've not been given the label, but she reckons I'm really it. Uh, and she says that one of my uh, real skills is seeing the big picture. Apparently, this is quite common with uh, people like me. Uh, so yeah. So so Alex, I'm I'm kind of. I'm interested in this generation thing. Uh, I'm a I'm a baby boomer, and there's still quite a few baby boomers uh, who are running, um, you know, big construction companies. They're, they're, you know, there's still a lot of us around. Uh, there's also Gen Z, Gen Xers. Um, you know, the the generation after baby boomers. There's a there's there's a lot of those in senior management positions. Uh, Millennials are now coming into senior management positions, and and Gen Zs, as I understand it, the oldest are probably entering into uh, into into first line management, um, and so I'm really interested in uh, the construction industry. It's the only place I've ever been, forty seven years, um, and I'm interested in um, the leaders and the managers. Um, in in construction businesses and on big construction projects, but I'm also interested in those young construction professionals who are now coming into management. Um, because I've created a, uh, a a course called Coach for Results, which provides uh, the essentials of a coaching style of management as opposed to a 
a tell or a command and control style of management, which is probably the default still in the construction industry. So I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of curious about uh, uh, early Gen Zs uh, and 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 uh, late millennials uh, because they're kind of target audience for for for, for my my course. They're the, they're the people I'm I'm looking to engage with. Um, and 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 Alex, I, I'm 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 one of these baby boomer guys. You know, I'm just over sixty. So, well, sixty three coming up. Um, I hear a lot of not so good stuff about some of these younger generations. Uh, I'm also a bit weary about categorising whole bunches of people. Uh, so I'm, I mean, because because you've taken, you know, a, a, a number of cohorts of these young people through the education system, and I'd be really interested to hear your take on, you know, how they're wired up. Uh, I'm, I'm told they're different to to me, but maybe that maybe they are, maybe they're not. I, I don't know. So I'd love to get your take on that. Well, well, thank you. You will always have bigger differences within generations than between. So you know, there, there's something about classifying people into generations, which is convenient for analysis. Um. You know, and the whole package of it is it you know around fifteen years, something like that. But people tend to have heard of the baby boomers, that and and they might have heard millennials. In terms of who they are, if they're between them and all the rest of it, you know, maybe not so much. And you know, if you're a sibling group, um, say three siblings, uh, and you look at the years which are commonly used for analysis for when, say, millennials might you know you might find that there's two millennials, one. Gen Z, um, and you know you'll have far more in common than at the than at the other end, but but for me, um, you know, I started as a head teacher in two thousand and six, and there are different dates floating about as to when uh, Gen Z actually starts, uh, but I, I tend to take it as nineteen ninety five, mid nineties, um, going up for fifteen years up to. And including you know, around two thousand and nine. So the, as you indicate, the youngest group, you know, they're still at school, and not recently started secondary school. I think for me, what really piqued my interest was I heard one snowflake comment too many, and I thought, hang on a minute, the the. So so, so Alex, I've I've heard that term before. What 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 is a slow? What's a snowflake? Well, I think somebody who might be brittle. You know, reacts too easily, easily upset, um, doesn't like um, someone being straight talking to them, um, might not want to put in the hours and work hard and all those kinds of things. You know, the analogy of someone who easily dissolves and dissolves. Because my youngest is 27 and that's not him at all. He's kind of the opposite of all of that. Well, this is it. And I thought, okay, I've been working with these kids for years here. And I've seen how they were in secondary school. I saw trends change over time in attitudes, how they behaved, the impact that technology had on them. Right. The influence that... Uh, if I take, say, the global financial crash 
of around 2008 and the years of austerity, as they were called, that followed, the impact that had on school budgets, youth services, early years services, all these kinds of things, the generation above had a more prosperous time. Uh, and if you look at the percentage changes in GDP over a period of time, yeah, I mean, clearly we saw um, a big dip 2008-9, but actually the, the, the last 10, 12 years has not been so kind compared to, say, the first, uh, you know, the first decade. And combine that with the economic circumstances they've faced coming out of school, the price of property, all the cost of living things that are, you know, well known about now. I think the full impact of globalisation, which I think was drummed into them quite a lot as a generation at school, that, look, you know, you're competing for jobs with, you know, those who aren't in your country and, you know, all of that. I do think that that hit home. And also, I was part of a cohort of heads in schools across the whole country where expectations shifted in terms of what could be done, what needed to be done, what needs to be done now, because these kids were here now, you know, and, and, and all those all those kinds of things. So I, I, um, I didn't like how the generation I was responsible for in schools was being depicted in the media. I was particularly disheartened to see how much of it came from my own generation. And I, I looked at the fact that my own generation, you know, we inherited peace. You know, grandfathers had fought in wars, you know, all those kinds of things, which we hadn't had to do. You know, parents, if they were baby boomers um, or even you know, a little bit older, you know, got clear memories of ration books and, and all of that. Um, and then, you know, and so for us, what we inherited, you know, we didn't have the reference point of what war might be like, hard to visualise. And I remember those things being said to us. So for us to grow up, and start making unkind comments about the generation coming through, I thought, well, I'm not having that because I know they're better. And um, so, you know, I, I've combined um, that sort of initial indignation with um, doing quite a lot of focus group work with this, the generation on the ground. So those who are new into the workplace or relatively new into the workplace, uh, and, and doing a lot of research, really, and just saying, okay, this is what I feel on the basis of. Let's see the extent to which this this backs it up. Um, so, for example, I, I think this generation worked incredibly hard at school, more so um, more so than before, I think. So, you know, just looking at the um, for example, the grades that are coming out of schools or the degree classifications that are coming out of university, you know, the, the percentage of degrees that came out as first-class degrees practically doubled in, in, across the 2010s. Uh, you, you could argue that it's become a competition and the universities need to show that they've got good grades and all those kinds of things. But we've got a generation where... If they have the resources available to them for them to improve, can be incredibly diligent at pursuing it. And they've been pushed that way in schools. 
you know, and by the parents, you know, other teachers and all those kinds of things. But they are a resourceful bunch. And the increased numbers going to university has also been accompanied by a significant increase in the quality of outcomes that they have. And one of the things that I find myself saying to organisations is because they, they I have challenges that come to me, you know, we're trying to recruit, trying to retain, trying to motivate, you know, the, this group and we need them. And, you know, whatever people's perspectives are on Brexit and so on, um, there's been more demand for people coming into organisations. And one of the things I say to them is, don't behave as though, um, you know, you're you're just looking to get anybody in because you're, or that you might drop your standard of what you want. You know, this generation did not work so hard for the GCSEs, A-levels and degrees to then want to work for somebody who is happy to, to uh, accept what they get. You know, they want to see some ambition um, because that's what they've demonstrated in their own lives and they expect it to be matched by the organisations they choose to work for. So, so Alex, look, look, look uh, I'm a, I'm a uh, I don't know, I'm a senior exec for a you know, big construction company, forward-moving, wants to do well. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, my organisations, I'm, I'm role-playing here, uh, because I'm really not a chief exec of a, you know, I'm, I'm me, Dave, coach. Um, and so we're, we're recruiting these young, these young professionals into the construction industry. Uh, so, you know, for, for instance, Gen Z, tell me, the, tell me the four or five things I need to know about these young people uh, in order to recruit, retrain and motivate, because that's what you said. So what, what, what do I need to know about these people? Yeah, I think you can have high expectations of them. So I've talked about their capacity for hard work and their diligence. Um, you know, they are, this generation is not going to be turning up at work with a hangover. All right. Yeah. So if I think about, you know, sort of drinking culture in any organization, you know, 30 years ago, you know, they're not smoking, they're not drinking. Um, you know, they, and, and they want stability in their income. They want to. They want to know that, and a lot of them have got side hustles, side gigs going on, and they can be pretty pragmatic with it. And it's it's not about that. It is entrepreneurial, but it's also pragmatic because without that second income, the bills aren't getting paid. Because the bills are bigger. Because the bills are bigger. The bills are bigger, and what used to reduce the bills, or at least stabilise the bills, years ago was putting down a deposit on property and then your mortgage is your mortgage unless interest rates change. Whereas what's happened over time, it's become much harder to buy. Uh, therefore, you have to stay renting. Therefore, you're much more susceptible to the market. So uh, there, is a, um, there is a pragmatism to them as well. So, 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 so if... So, so, so if I'm out the door at five o'clock, it's not because I'm not committed. It's because I've got a, 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 another job to go to in order to make ends meet. You know, if you look at all these Etsy shops, you know, whether making stuff and selling it or they're engaged in, um, you know, what we used to call moonlighting, I suppose, you know, other jobs that they might be going to do. You know, there's there's large numbers of them with their own business, which um, 
you know, including a lot of on, online retail. But then it's all the sort of food stands at weekends. It's, um, you know, you've got quite a lot of bricks and mortar shops as well, or doing property investment, or they're working together, they're helping someone else on their side gig. You know, they're, they're, they are um, they are productive. And, and this is somewhere I think like sort of Gen X age like me can struggle with because if it's right, we're full commitment, all in and so on. Um, but actually, unless you're prepared to increase the salaries by a substantial margin, it's going to be hard for them to give that up. Um, although if they're living at home and paying peppercorn rents and those kind of things, then you know they might not need to because they're not having to spend the other way or they're having to save um, you know, for for deposits or be able to save enough to move away and pay pay rent for a while. Um, they so there's the, the hard work, the pragmatism. I'd say just their prudence as well. I mean that you know they're not spending huge amounts on foreign holidays or you know they're not the Instagram generation particularly. I think that's what came before. And um, you know I'm not saying none of them are travelling, but I think that's become a, a far more expensive um activity to to engage in i think that the word i've used for this last one is I mean, i've called it apprehensive and i think for this particular cohort who are now in their mid-20s um i think all that technology that arrived at the same time without parents and teachers really knowing what they were dealing with to guide them through I do think that had a difficult effect. I mean, I've got a daughter who's who's 11 years old and I can see just how much guidance she's had from a primary school and now a secondary school on all of this. You know, we learn all this stuff together. And whether it's, you know, the, the social media, um, the ubiquitous presence of the camera and the effect that has on behaviour, um, you know, that someone with a camera might might get you doing something somewhere, just, you know letting yourself and go enjoying yourself at a concert or a football match or whatever, they're a lot more um, restrained and they're a lot more savvy about the reputation management and their data, actually, as well. Personal reputation management. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Because this this imprint can go with you and you don't necessarily know where it ends. So, you know, the office party in... Christmas of your first year in employment might still have some kind of digital imprint 10 years down the line, mm. those kinds of things. Having said that, so I do think there are differences, but I also think, um, I also think organisations can overcome them in how they present themselves and what they offer and the clarity and detail in which they, in which they do so. And uh, I do see this where you, you, you can work out which organisations might be, I've looked into this a little bit, or at least they've asked the workers they've currently got from that generation how, why they chose them, why they wanted to go to them. And, you know, 10 years ago or longer, I think people were happy with the gloss and the message and so on. Now, uh, yeah, authenticity is everything. Right, because this this generation authenticity of the organisation, yeah, and the people in them, right, uh, and and the people in them that they, they expect, you know, the, the deluge of information 
that us over the course of our working lives have got used to developing over time you know our digital literacy we've we've developed over time they've grown up with it and in terms of them trying to work out what's real what's fake what's for them what's not for them and so on has been a challenge for a long period of time and is going to stay that way so for example organizations that make sure you know that it's not just here's a statement from our ceo on the website here's a video Here's the actual person who's in charge of it talking to you and basically allowing the individual to work out, actually, they, this does sound good. This this does look good. They're very, very astute with anything that presents as gloss, right. anything that is, um, anything that might not be what they say it is. You know, there's definitely a wariness because in this day and age, if you want to learn to do anything new, new skills, whatever, you know, you've got endless digital resources, online courses like the one, you know, you're talking about, YouTube videos, you know, here's, here's you know, endless videos on how to make your Christmas dinner or, or, or whatever it is. They expect things, aspects of work that they need to know about to be laid out for them in detail, which is what they've been used to at school or university. And if you give that to them, they'll use it and do a good job of it. Where I say organisations have got more to do is that the critical thinking skills and problem solving and all that kind of stuff, the kind of thing that you can't easily learn from a YouTube course, the kind of thing that you get from a coaching programme, as you're talking about, that probably needs to be more investment on those kinds of skills, maybe even personal development stuff, than a lot of leaders and organisations might think is reasonable. But on the other side of that, you get the work rate, you, you can get the commitment to it, um, you know, that you, uh, and the, you know, the level of qualification uh, and so on that you might not have had access to 10, 15 years before. But if you can get the professional and personal development in the right place for them early on and have a reputation for doing that, you know, I think you can have a very regular pipeline of high quality um, candidates coming to want to work for you. Mm. And also, I guess, Alex, I heard a statistic a few weeks ago. It's not going to be very long. I mean, we're talking months that the majority of the workforce is going to be millennials and Gen Zs. So it's it's almost it's not nice to have. It's business critical that we get the best out of these young professionals yeah absolutely i mean all um you know in 2023 now in two years time gen z will be over a quarter of the uk workforce you know five years after that over a third of the global workforce so you know we're no longer just talking about entryists you know we're talking about real substantial proportion and and also there are gaps to fill there are gaps to fill so organizations might find themselves already having to bring people through to do take on responsibilities and management roles earlier than might have been the case before. And preparation um, for those people to do that likely needs to start earlier than was previously the case. But if you can clearly show what the route through the organisation might be and lay it out for them, I think this generation uh, will be very attracted to that. Because it's a, it's indicating to them that you want to do well, 
but also it shows that you're thinking things through because for this generation you know you know they had global financial crash uh, affecting the teenage years and for a lot of them as soon as they get to the workplace is covid they want to work for organizations that look as though they might plan ahead and therefore have got a better chance of surviving the next time something really bad which couldn't have been predicted happens yeah and it's going to happen and it's going to happen so that they want to join organizations where you've got people who think and engage with their employees in doing so fantastic alex um it's been amazing talking with you i've got a real insight into uh the sorts of people that i'm looking to uh, to get on my course so this has been great um so Alex, we've got, we, we've got a couple of minutes. Um, what else do we need to say? I think, uh, I think from my point of view, I love working with organisations that are trying to get this right for their youngest stuff. And, uh, you know, it's not that I feel Gen Z or Gen Z needs an advocate or a spokesperson, but I do feel my own generation needs to do a little bit of listening. Uh, and whether it's to me or somebody else or that kind of openness, I do feel there is much to gain so that organisations can sustain and develop uh, you know, and thrive through you know, what are uncertain times have been for a while. And I'm not sure it's showing any signs of stopping at the moment. So yeah, whether it's going in and doing seminars or conference talks or sort of the basic consultancy or working with Gen Z's mastermind style, or with leaders, you know, coaching them through um, the kinds of issues we talk about. You know, I'm, I'm all up for that. Fantastic, and it's needed. <laughs> Good to hear. Brilliant. Today, I've been talking with Alex Atherton. Uh, Alex, great, great uh, conversation. I, I, I've, I've learned a lot. Which is great. Oh, thanks, Dave. Thanks for your time. All, all, all the best with your uh, with your coaching and uh, and where you go from here. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Dave. Today we've been talking about coaching conversations. I hope you've enjoyed listening and you are taking away something that you can use to make things better for you and those in your team or around you. To find out more or even better, learn the essentials of a coaching style of management. Check out Coach for Results book and course on our website dsabuilding.co.uk or simply click the link below. This is Dave Stitt and you've been listening to Coaching Conversations.